This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Overcoming Mountainous Difficulties. In the first half, Michael A. Dunn shares his address, Why Mountains? Then in the second half, Carol Wilkinson speaks on Becoming and Overcoming. Now, on behalf of our entire staff behind the cameras and microphones at BYU Broadcasting, may I first say how much we enjoy bringing these inspiring devotionals to you each and every week. And may I also say with equal certainty that on behalf of one justifiably terrified member of our staff today, that it's a lot more pleasant being behind those cameras and microphones than in the front. Now, I know you came here on this beautiful October day expecting a devotional, but instead I want to invite you to take a hike with me. Well, actually make that a climb with me. And if it's heights that bother you, don't worry. As a confirmed acrophobic myself, I promise we're going to be cautious. You should know that I subscribe completely to the sentiments of Mark Twain, who once quipped, There is probably no pleasure equal to the pleasure of climbing a dangerous alp, but it is a pleasure which is confined strictly to people who can find pleasure in it. (laughs) Well, despite my fears, my aim today is to convince you that no matter how rocky the road ahead may look or how distant the summit may seem, that your effort is worth it. So I simply want to urge you onward and upward in your journey because I promise you that wherever you are on the path, what awaits you is, in the words of Joseph Smith, a view that is glorious beyond description. Now, Speaking of incredible views, just to the east of us in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains is a dramatic mountain known as Y Mountain. It's called Y Mountain because of the 380-foot-tall by 130-foot-wide block Y, the trumpets to the world that nestled at its base sits the campus of Brigham Young University. But it wasn't always Y Mountain. Y Mountain, you see, was originally known by its Ute Indian name, Wadahikawi, which is a 14-letter word which translated literally means blessed mountain. I was thinking it's a good thing they opted to do just one letter because, by my calculations, 14 letters at that scale would have covered most of the Wasatch Front from Provo to Payson (laughs) and maybe beyond. But painting just one letter on the mountain was never the plan. In April of 1906, the concept was to put the letter B, the letter Y, and the letter U on the mountain. But after a fire line of high school and university students working feverishly for six hours, passing bucket load after bucket load of whitewash up the mountain, they were only able to complete the letter Y. In a wise reconsideration, it was decided that one letter would be adequate. Well, with your permission today, but I should add without President Worthen's, I'm sorry, President Worthen, or the National Forest Service, I might add, I have decided today to not only remodel the single letter on Y Mountain, but also rename it. Because I believe there's an argument to change it into a similar sounding yet somewhat more rhetorical and profound message, Y Mountains. Now, although this little change took hundreds of thousands of bucket loads of white pixels to pull off this very audacious act. I took this liberty in the hopes that every time you hike or even glance up at Y Mountain or for the next time you might be faced with a mountainous challenge, 
that you will simply ponder the blessed question, why mountains? Why do we have mountains, and why are we so compelled to get on top of them? Is it simply because they are there, as the mountaineer George Mallory's pithy quote suggested? Or are there grander, higher, and even divine purposes in these pinnacles? Well, since the beginning, one of the reasons we don't just admire mountains but feel so compelled to climb and conquer them is because of the fundamental and foundational truth that we, as eternally progressing beings, are predisposed to take on challenges. That's an essential underpinning of God's plan of happiness. So you and I are divinely engineered to be dynamic and not static. Being in motion is requisite to progression. So we instinctively crave sacred summits, like the temple, general conference, or that summit of summits, heaven. And so even hard and uphill journeys, like life, for instance, can't help but foster and develop both our progress and a priceless byproduct of that effort, which is faith. Now, conversely, travel limited to flat or inclined roads impedes our progression or even can foster laziness. Consider Alma's strong caution about the casualness created by level roads when he said, O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. So think of mountains and the inherent challenge they pose as being good for our souls. Learning how to deal with and overcome things we perceive as hard betters and improves us. That includes many of life's summits, such as graduation and missions, and yes, budding relationships trying to blossom into eternal ones. Now, This myriad of essential life steps can easily be viewed as hard roads. But the truth is, all hard roads eventually merge with heavenly roads. So why mountains? Well, mountains like those before us in this big-time adventure called life tempt us. They terrify us. They test us, and they try us. Mountains stretch us, break us down, and can sometimes even bring us to an exasperated halt. At the same time, they stir our souls. They inspire us, and they have this transformative ability to rekindle hope to steal our resolve, and to hone our faith step by courageous step. Now, this mandates a never-before-thought-possible ability to push ourselves even sometimes to unthinkable heights. For it is only in testing our limits that we find out how limitless we are. It is only when we push ourselves beyond our perceived capacity that we discover within ourselves the courage, fortitude, and faith to continue the journey. As the Australian mountaineer Greg Child so aptly put it, somewhere between the bottom of the climb and the summit is the answer to the mystery why we climb. And as if an uphill climb isn't enough, one common challenge of any high-altitude journey is that there is usually always some kind of pesky obstacle that inevitably pops up in our path. Most often this happens at inopportune and unexpected times. And no matter the size, shape, or form, unforeseen obstructions can discourage, detour, and even derail the strongest and most determined person. Those are the times when someone might rightly ask, is this really worth it? Or, I don't see any way around this. To which I unequivocally say, yes, it is worth it. It is so worth it. And yes, you will get through it if you decide to. Because continuing on is simply a matter of first accepting and embracing the doctrinal reality that obstacles 
are an essential and embraceable feature of the plan and the pathway of happiness, and that the covenant pathway is not only oftentimes uphill, but that it is strewn end-to-end with these aggravating hurdles and hitches. President Dallin H. Oaks affirmed that problem-solving is an inherent part of the plan. All of us face obstacles, said President Oaks. All of us have challenges. We all walk paths that lead us toward heights we think we cannot ascend. Sooner or later, we all stand at the foot of cliffs we think we cannot scale. Note that President Oaks referred to cliffs that we think we cannot scale. Often our perception of what we think we can and cannot do is far different from the reality of what we can and cannot do. And I believe that we are more limited by our desire than we are by our capacity. The English language idiom, making a molehill out of a mountain, captures perfectly the phenomenon that occurs when someone like me makes too big of a deal over an obstacle, which in reality is truly pretty small. Now, to be sure, there are very real, dark, chronic, and sometimes even major physical, emotional, and spiritual problems that many people unfortunately face. And I do not intend for a moment to minimize or be dismissive of the myriad of very vexing issues which many, including some of you here today, face on a daily basis. But what I've found as I've analyzed my personal struggles is that the reality is most of these really are more molehills than Mount Everest. Now, Elder Horacio Tenorio of the Seventy gave an interesting perspective on those obstacles and about the remarkable traits that emerge within us when we find the fortitude to move beyond these impediments. Problems form an important part of our lives. They are placed in our path for us to overcome them, not to be overcome by them. We must master them and not let them master us. Every time we overcome a challenge, we grow in experience, in self-assuredness, and in faith. One summer, nearly 25 years ago, I learned about this firsthand as my adventure-loving wife, Linda, somehow persuaded me, her frady cat husband, and a small group of our friends to join her in doing something she had dreamed of since she was a little girl. And that was to summit a 13,770-foot peak in Wyoming known as the Grand Teton. And while it was her biggest dream, I have to tell you, it was more like my biggest nightmare. My feelings were best summed up by the comedian George Carlin, who once said, I don't really have a fear of heights, but I do have a fear of falling from those heights. Now, admittedly, as rugged and daunting as the Teton Range appears, it really is one of the most stunning and postcard-perfect mountain panoramas in the world, and especially so for me when viewed from the bedrock security of the valley floor, which is where I preferred. But it wasn't these mountains and their breathtaking summits that terrified me. Rather, it was that moment which I will forever remember in our mountaineering school when I first learned about a fabled and much-storied obstacle that we would face on the route to the top. Now, in reality, it was just a simple yet very technical rock protrusion. But from the minute I heard about it, I started to get nervous. Brad Weiners, writing in an article for Sports Illustrated about climbing the Grand Teton, and which, by the way, didn't exactly quell my anxiety with the article's headline, which was Countdown to Tragedy, right? (laughs) 
Mr. Winders called out the main obstacles on this iconic mountain. He said the real challenge of climbing the Grand Teton isn't maneuvering on rock. It's the exposure. That is, exposure to dizzying falls. As long as you're fit, you can handle the physical effort of summiting the mountain. But you have to ramp up your courage for certain features, such as a large flake of rock on a ledge that requires you to go up and over the flake or out and around it, over a deep abyss. It's terrifying or exhilarating or both. Well, for me, there was no debate. It was terrifying. And how ironic, though, was it that in a climb that would take two days and thousands of vertical feet, that the scariest part to me was just a single small step right in the very middle of the ascent. Now, that step, officially called the Wall Street Step Across, is no more than three feet wide. It's part of the fabled Wall Street section of the Exum route, and it marks the beginning of where the ascent of the Grand gets very serious. You begin by climbing onto a very comfortable 15-foot-wide ledge, but as you inch your way along this ramp, often in the darkness, it ever so slowly but dramatically begins to tilt outwards while narrowing down to a width of no more than a few feet across at the abrupt end of the ledge. Now, at that point, there's a gap in the rock and then that abyss referred to in Sports Illustrated. Across this gap of less than a meter is an outcropping of rock which forms a blind corner. This requires the climber to take an unforeseen step around this corner where you hopefully find footing on the other side of the ledge. That's right, you can't see where you are stepping. And as if a blind step isn't scary enough, you step across this gap with nothing but 1,500 feet of very thin, frosty air floating beneath you. Now, all during the long hike to the base camp the day before, I agonized over this little problem I was going to encounter. That night, I found it difficult to eat. And obsessing over and over about this simple step kept me wide-eyed and literally sleepless the entire night before the summit attempt. Now, in hindsight, it wasn't that I was incapable of making this step. It was a very simple move for me and actually for any of you. A step of that kind in any other situation would have been no big deal. Reflecting on it later, it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was simply that I didn't have the courage to conquer this particular fear. Which is the interesting thing about fear. Fear can freeze us. It can paralyze us. It can stop us in our tracks and keep us from moving forward. This gripping chokehold suffocates our sapling faith. And without that faith, we cannot move forward. Elder Boyd K. Packer affirmed that faith is both the beacon and the propellant that keeps us on our journey. Said Elder Packer, faith to be faith must center around something that is not known. Faith to be faith must go beyond that for which there is confirming evidence. Faith to be faith must go into the unknown. Faith to be faith must walk to the edge of the light and then a few steps into the darkness. Well, as students, you may be feeling that stifling fear as you face what the late apostle to Robert D. Hales described as the decade of decision. In summing up the road before you, Elder Hales observed that in the next 10 years or so, you must step to the edge of the light and even a few steps beyond as you engage the major decisions of your life. 
These include school, missions, temple, dating, marriage, career, graduate school, and especially forming and firming up your testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, consider all at once the sheer size and number of these perceived obstacles may look like an avalanche headed your way. It might even cause you to momentarily lose sight of the summit beyond them. Taking them on all at once can be overwhelming or sometimes even debilitating. Or decisions can be tackled one at a time, using a combination of faith, courage, and simply taking that very first step, and then another, and then another, until we find ourselves moving again towards that summit. And tough as those first few steps can be, I will tell you that nothing is exhilarating as simply putting ourselves back in motion. It's so freeing that it neutralizes fear within us because it causes us to dig deep to find the courage to conquer anything on our horizon. That courage is the catalyst of faith. Faith, which, as you know, cannot commingle with fear. But it will exact a full-throated effort on your part. President M. Russell Ballard talked of the price to be paid when he said, It will require every bit of our strength, wisdom, and energy to overcome the obstacles that will confront us. But even that will not be enough. We will learn, as did our pioneer ancestors, that it is only in faith, real faith, whole-souled, tested, and tried, that we will find safety and confidence as we walk our own perilous pathways through life. Now, I somehow believe it or not, found that kind of faith on that very summer morning nearly a quarter of a century ago. And as you ponder your approach to that next critical step looming somewhere in your life, let me tell you what I did. Our seasoned guide, Jack, would be the first one to take that step. And just as he had done in our beginning and intermediate mountaineering class, Jack promised he would lead and show us the way. At base camp, he assured me he had full confidence in my ability, and he would not let me fail. Well, as I sat there crouched and shivering against that rock ledge on that very nervous, scary morning, I marveled as he deftly and confidently made the move across the gap and stepped around the corner. Now, not hearing a fading scream echoing off the rocks, (laughs) I was pretty sure he made it safely. But then came the really scary realization that as the weakest climber in our group, I would be next. Then, just after concluding my 687th prayer of that morning, (laughs) I found myself at a very critical juncture in this climb as I heard the chilling invitation coming from our unseen guide around the corner as he said, Climb, Michael. Well, it was go time. There was no turning back and no other reasonable option. Although I pondered everything from a parachute to a helicopter to a hang glider. But in that moment, and after a very deep and calming breath, I somehow bubbled up enough courage to make a very simple decision. And here's what I decided. I decided that instead of churning over and over again about what disaster might befall me, I would instead focus on the basics. And on my guide's example. In other words, I would rely on all the fundamentals I'd been taught in mountaineering school. In other words, I would only worry about the things I had control over. And in that same moment, I visualized my ultimate goal. And as I saw myself, hands raised in a triumphant manner, 
stepping proudly onto the summit of that Grand Teton. The doomsday scenarios, which I had so vividly rehearsed and played out in my head over and over again during the preceding days, faded quickly to the background. Unexpectedly, a very warm feeling of calmness and assurance washed over me, and that feeling was faith, faith sufficient to displace the fear and backfill it with the courage I needed. Now, this infusion of faith also allowed me to find focus, and even if my legs were wobbly, I will tell you that my faith was firm. I stepped to the edge, locked my focus like a laser on that rock across the gap, and felt committed and self-assured as I ever have. I did not look back, and I'll tell you, I certainly did not look down. But instead, I did everything I was taught and capable of and took that step. Well, never has there been a more glorious feeling in my entire being, body, and soul that when my climbing boot found purchase on that blessed solid rock around the corner. With a secure foothold, I shifted my weight and confidently pulled myself across and onto this newfound next level. From the triumphant, no, the truth be told, make that primeval scream of joy which I let out, you would have thought I had just summited Mount Everest, which for me, in this tiny moment of victory, I actually had. I had literally and figuratively turned a corner. Giddy with confidence, I even shouted encouragement to those coming next. Can you just see me? Come on, guys, it's not that bad. You can do it. (laughs) Much to their chagrin, I'm sure, especially of those braver and more skilled climbers who followed me and were much, much better climbers than me. But brimming with joy, relief, and exaltation, I again offered a short but very sincere prayer of thanks heavenward, and then I raised my arms heavenward in celebration. Then I felt something else, and this time I felt something physical. But it was not until I made that upward motion that I realized there was so much more to my successful crossing of the Wall Street step across. Because the moment I put my arms up and felt the taut pull of the rope securely fastened by a figure-eight knot looped through the carabiner in my climbing harness— I glanced over at Jack, who flashed me one of those I-told-you-could-do-it smiles. And as I watched him get ready to belay the next climber in our group, I realized that it was his belay that had held me securely through the entire move. In fact, I'm sure I could have dived headfirst into that Wall Street gap because he was holding me so tightly and still not even had a scratch on me. But he gave me just enough slack in the rope to let me do it on my own. And although in my anxiety I had completely forgotten about this protection and could not see him or even sense him, he was literally there to save me from the fall. Now, similar protections are promised you by the Lord, which are even more sure and secure than even the stoutest climbing rope. Our Savior and seasoned guide promises, There I will be also, for I will go before your face. And I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. That simple test gave me courage to go on and face other challenges, including, believe it or not, a return to Wall Street. Now, against my better judgment, but with the always obedient encouragement of my wife, Linda, and with my newfound confidence, 
we actually made it a family tradition, a rite of passage to climb the Grand Teton with each of my children to celebrate their high school graduations. And this was one time where I was so thankful I only had three kids. (laughs) And although I still have a chronic case of the willies when I'm at those heights, I have indeed become braver and bolder with each return trip. My confidence in myself and in my God has grown exponentially. The legendary mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary expressed it another way when he said, It is not the mountains we conquer, but ourselves. Dr. Seuss, in his infinitely wise and whimsical way, also attested to your better-than-you-know-it abilities when he wrote, And when you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet things that'll scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. So be sure when you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. And will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed. Ninety-eight and three-quarter percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. Your mountain is indeed waiting and ready to tackle. And as you take it on, you will find that inner and yet-to-be-discovered strength by combining the formidable tandem of courage and faith, combined with God's promise of protecting and enabling blessings. And that's even better, by the way, than Dr. Seuss's because it's 100% guaranteed, and especially as we live worthily of those promised blessings. Now, President Oaks explained more about how this formula works when he said, Nothing is impossible to those who keep God's commandments and follow His directions. But the blessings that carry us over obstacles do not precede our efforts. They follow them. What do we do when we face obstacles in the fulfillment of our righteous responsibilities? We reach out and climb. Handholds will only be found by hands that are outstretched. Footholds are only for feet that are on the move. The blessings that solve problems and carry us over obstacles come to persons who are on the move. My dear brothers and sisters, I ask you today to ask yourself just one question. Is your life on the move? And if not, why not? Whether you find yourself shuffling or skipping up the covenant pathway, it really doesn't matter. Being in gear does. And as you face the hard and uphill road ahead, please remember that you are not alone. We all face different yet similar trials. As a reminder, periodically, please remember when you look up at Why Mountain, ask yourself the question, Why Mountains? My prayer is that you'll remember that they are there not to befuddle us, but to bless us. May we also remember the matchless example of our guide, Jesus Christ who went first and showed us that more perfect way. And as he beckons you to take your turn and climb, may you rally the courage and faith to do it on your own, while at the same time relying fully on the absolute certainty of that heavenly belay. Finally, remember that it's likely you will face mountains of doubt and faith sufficient to move mountains and sometimes have both experiences in the very same day. But I pray that you'll have the vision and fortitude that when you encounter deterrence, be they mountains or molehills, that you will see them for the heaven-sent opportunities they are. 
that you will charge headlong into them, seeking those summits, offering views glorious beyond description, and bravely and confidently declaring, as Caleb of old, Lord, give me this mountain. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Overcoming Mountainous Difficulties. We've just heard from Michael A. Dunn. After the break, we'll return with Carol Wilkinson for Becoming and Overcoming. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Overcoming Mountainous Difficulties. Next is Carol Wilkinson, BYU Professor of Exercise Sciences at the time of this address, titled Becoming and Overcoming. Whenever I visit my sister's family in Salt Lake City, as I am about to leave, my six-year-old niece, Emily, usually chirps up with, Wait, Carol, we haven't written in my journal yet. Writing in her journal consists of the two of us going out to my car where she uses a small notebook I keep in the glove compartment to draw pictures of different fairy tales, such as Sleeping Beauty, and she then spells out the names of the characters with my help. No matter what story she chooses, it inevitably consists of a princess and prince seeking to overcome difficult circumstances involving a wicked person and then eventually living happily ever after. Over the last five years, I have spent time working with the young women of the Church in my ward and in my stake. As I listen to them talk, many of them describe their worthy goals and their planned path ahead that usually includes education, getting married, having children, then grandchildren, and hopefully living happily ever after, they say with a smile. It's interesting that they never mention overcoming difficulties or a wicked person as part of their plan. In 1840, Wilford Woodruff and other apostles traveled to England to share the message of the restored gospel. In the beautiful green rolling countryside, I'm not biased of course, of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire, try saying that very fast, Elder Woodruff experienced phenomenal success and hundreds of people joined the church. 14-year-old Thomas Steed of Malvern converted to the church during this time period. Shortly after his baptism, while at a gathering of saints, Thomas experienced a wonderful spiritual manifestation, which he recorded later in life. Quote, The house was filled with the Spirit and the power of God, and everyone present was thrilled with the convincing power of the Holy Spirit, and which I could feel through my whole system like fire shut up in my bones. It was then plainly made known unto me that God lives, that Jesus is the Redeemer, and that Joseph Smith was a prophet of the Most High God. Of the truth of this, a doubt has never crossed my mind from that day to this. A few years after this exhilarating experience, Thomas immigrated to America, arriving in Nauvoo on April 13, 1844. He records, The prophet Joseph Smith was at the pier. At first glance, I could tell it was him by his noble expression. He came on board to shake hands and welcome us by many encouraging words and express his thankfulness that we had arrived in safety. 
As he could not stay with us, he sent Apostle George A. Smith to preach on board. What did you come here for? asked he. To be instructed in the ways of the Lord, answered someone. I tell you, Apostle Smith said, you have come to the thrashing floor, and after you have been thrashed and pounded, you will have to go through the fanning mill, where the chaff will be blown away and the wheat remain. The troubles in Nauvoo were just coming upon them. End quote. Thrashed and pounded. Now, can you imagine a stunned Thomas and his fellow British converts possibly thinking, uh, actually, no, this isn't what we had in mind? I'm sure they weren't contemplating a life full of trials upon arriving in Zion. Yet, overcoming difficulties is part of life's experience, as the saints in Nauvoo discovered, and so will we. During my time working here at BYU, I know of many students who have experienced difficulties in their lives. These trials range in degree of difficulty and include not getting into the school of your choice, coping with eating disorders, loss of health. My student, Jamie, who gave the opening prayer this morning, almost died last April from an illness that she had at that time. Loss of loved ones and experiencing abuse, to name a few. If trials haven't come into your life yet, rest assured they will come to each of you at some point. As they say in the advertising business, watch this space. Now, I don't want you to think, oh no, this is a doom and gloom talk. Adversity is part of the reality of life, and rather than push the topic under the carpet and hope it never affects us, the aim of my comments today is to try and help you know how to deal with adversity when it does come into your life. Why is there adversity in life? One reason adversity can come into our lives is due to sin. Another reason for trials is to help us develop, and it is this latter reason that I wish to explore. Elder Richard G. Scott states, When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where he wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain. Our Father in Heaven wants us to become like Him, and in so doing, He wants us to overcome the world and the influences of Satan. Difficulties in life allow us to find out how much we need the divine strength and love of our Father, not just during the difficulties, but always. As we reach out to God, we can find and experience His goodness and want to be like Him. Satan also wants us to be like him, evil and miserable, and so he seeks to overcome us and thwart God's plan. Elder Eyring says, quote, The great test of this life is not to endure storms, but to choose the right while they rage. End quote. In the pre-mortal life, we shouted for joy at the opportunity to come to earth to take this test. Yet there have been times when I've been really struggling in the midst of a trial and I've thought, in pre-earth life, was I excited for this? What was I thinking? And I've wondered when all the joyful shouting took place if I was actually in the spiritual restroom taking a break. <laughs> I would like to place difficulties into two categories, short-term difficulties and long-term difficulties. 
I will define short-term difficulties as those that occur in the space of a period of time that extends from minutes to a few months. For example, you lose an object and try to find it. Your car breaks down and you need help. You don't get into the school you wish to enter and have to choose another. As difficulties come into our lives, there are two ways to approach them. The first approach leads to allowing oneself to be influenced and overcome by Satan. With this first approach, if you don't exhibit any faith, pay attention to spiritual promptings or seek for divine help in the process, but just rely on your own abilities, when difficulties come and they're not resolved quickly, you may just feel extremely irritated. The second approach leads to overcoming the world and the influence of Satan through having faith in Christ. With this approach, if you are being obedient, pleading for help, and exhibiting faith, the trial may just be a test of your faith and could be resolved relatively quickly. Many of you will have experienced the situation where you have lost an object and after a prayer were able to find it, or someone showed up to help with a broken down car. However, just because the difficulty is short term, it can still be somewhat traumatic. For example, 20 years ago I had just finished my mission in England. I had worked in the US prior to going on a mission. And I felt impressed by the Spirit to return to the US to continue working. Application for a green card had been submitted by my company in the States 18 months earlier, and I began to wonder if it was ever going to come through. I prayed for help, tried hard to be obedient, and waited. One morning, as I lay in bed at my parents' home in England, I heard the postman push the mail through the letterbox in the front door of the house. The Spirit immediately confirmed that the letter stating the date of my interview at the U.S. Embassy had arrived, and I felt that all was going to be well. On the day of my interview, I traveled to London and sat in the embassy waiting for my interview. Suddenly, I noticed an older man come out from a back room and go over to one of the interviewers. With a startle, I recognized him as an individual I had encountered several years ago at the embassy when I was renewing a temporary work visa enabling me to work in the U.S. The temporary visa I had applied for at that time was totally legal, but at the time this fellow seemed to be perturbed and told me that from looking at my passport, I looked like a visitor to my own country, England, and that he never expected to see me again at the embassy. Very charming, I thought. As it turned out, the visa I obtained from him was the wrong one, and I had to return to the embassy to get the correct one. Fortunately, I didn't see him on that visit. Now, several years later, here he was talking to this young man, and both of them kept glancing over at me with penetrating stares. I continued to read my book and pretend that I hadn't noticed their stares. However, inside, my stomach was going into spasms, doing all sorts of gastrointestinal gymnastics. And I started to feel nauseous and lightheaded as a feeling of panic swept over me. I began to think I was doomed in my current endeavor to obtain a green card. I said a silent prayer reminding Heavenly Father that I was only trying to follow spiritual promptings in going back to the U.S. anyway and that I desperately needed his help. The older man returned to his office and a short while later the young interviewer called me over and everything went smoothly as he told me not to worry about previous comments that had been made about my visas. 
My panic subsided, and as I walked out of the building, a feeling of elation came over me. I silently expressed my gratitude to my Father in heaven, and immediately the thought came to my mind. You felt confirmation earlier from me about the visa. Why did you doubt that I would come through for you? I felt chagrined at my lack of faith in this difficult moment. Sometimes our difficulty isn't resolved as quickly as we would like it to be, and the problem becomes a long-term problem, lasting for many months or years. Examples of chronic problems are illness, coping with the loss of a loved one, experiencing the effects of sin in someone else's life, such as wayward parents, wayward children, or a spouse with an addiction to pornography. In such situations, let's first consider behaviors in response to the difficulty that can lead us down the path to rebellion and could ultimately lead us to being overcome by Satan. The purpose of doing this is so you'll know what behaviors to avoid. Step one. Things are not going according to the plan you had for your life. You're baffled, and so you question. You don't understand why things are going wrong. You ask questions such as, Why is God allowing this to happen to me? I don't deserve this. Or, This is a righteous desire. Why doesn't he help me? You don't ask the Lord to help you understand the situation. Laman and Lemuel are a prime example of this approach of not asking for understanding. When they could not comprehend some of their father's teachings, Nephi asked them if they had inquired of the Lord, to which they responded, We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. You can become bogged down in the fact that the Lord hasn't granted your desire. In this approach, your own reasoning leads you nowhere. Step 2. As time passes, you have exhibited faith, but it hasn't brought the results you desired, and so you feel let down, hurt, and you start to doubt your Father in heaven. You may think to yourself, God doesn't love me or care about me. You know he could remove the problem, as he is omnipotent, so you may wonder why he doesn't. Step 3. You still want your desires, and since you think you know best, you decide to set certain conditions. Maybe you set the condition that you're not going to give your full effort in your church calling unless Heavenly Father helps you get a job you've been seeking. Or you mistakenly think if you have enough faith, you can set a time frame for the Lord to come through for you. For example, you might think, I'm going to exhibit faith and want to meet my spouse by the end of this year. And if it doesn't happen, I won't have faith anymore. Elder Scott advises us that, quote, Our Father in heaven has invited you to express your needs, hopes, and desires unto him. That should not be done in the spirit of negotiation, but rather as a willingness to obey his will, no matter what direction that takes. His invitation, ask and ye shall receive, does not assure that you will get what you want. It does guarantee that, if worthy, you will get what you need, as judged by a Father that loves you perfectly, who wants your eternal happiness even more than you do. Step 4. Your desire is still not met, and so you become angry or bitter, which can lead to rebellion. When you rebel, the Spirit leaves you. Satan whispers to you, and you may have thoughts such as, I was right. God doesn't care about me. 
Church members are all hypocrites. The leaders aren't right. The church isn't true. There is no God. You listen to these whisperings and allow Satan to overcome you, and you become miserable like him. In contrast to this approach to long-term difficulties is the second approach that leads us to become like God and overcome the world and the effects of Satan through faith in the Savior. Throughout this approach, you continually seek to be obedient to the commandments, plead for divine help, and have faith in the Lord. Step 1. Things are not going according to your plan. You don't understand why things are going wrong. You know Heavenly Father could solve the problem as He is omnipotent. Yet you know that you don't know the meaning of all things. So remembering times when He has come through for you in the past, you decide to absolutely trust God. Trust that He knows what He is doing with you and that it will be for your good even though you haven't the faintest idea of how he is going to do it. Instead of asking why questions, you ask different questions. Questions such as, what should I do? What do you want me to learn from this? Try to find out what the Lord's will is. Obviously, he wants you to be obedient to his commandments, but what else does he have in mind for you? Tell him what your desires are, but then you need to be prepared to do his will. Sometimes your desire is not in line with his will. Remember that in Gethsemane, the Savior petitioned his Father several times for his will, that the cup could pass from him, while at the same time being willing to submit to his Father's will, which he ultimately did. Sometimes God is taking us down a different path, and righteous desires may not be met on our time schedule as he takes us down another path. Elder Scott again says, quote, As you trust him, exercise faith in him, he will help you. That support will generally come step by step, a portion at a time. While you are passing through each phase, the pain and difficulty that comes from being enlarged will continue. If all matters were immediately resolved at your first petition, you could not grow. Even when we feel a prompting to do something, God may have an entirely different goal in mind than what seems to be the case as we start to follow the prompting. For example, in 1830, Oliver Cowdery, Polly P. Pratt, Zyber Peterson, and Peter Whitmer were called to serve a mission to the Lamanites. On the way out to the Missouri frontier to preach to the Lamanites, they stopped in Kirtland, Ohio, and gave a Book of Mormon to Polly's friend, Sidney Rigdon, a Reformed Baptist minister. Prior to joining the church, Polly had also been a member of the Reformed Baptist in the Kirtland area. After reading the Book of Mormon for two weeks, Sidney was converted, and through him, many who attended his several congregations eventually accepted the restored gospel. The missionaries served the mission, but didn't bring many Lamanites into the church. Yet the mission was a success in terms of converts, in a very different way than what they had originally thought. So you need to pay attention to promptings and circumstances as they unfold in your life. Heavenly Father will use these to unfold his will to you. Prepare yourself for bends in the road and lots of surprises. Step two, when your faith doesn't bring the results you desire 
and you struggle with the trial, you need to ask for strength. Through the Holy Ghost, God will strengthen you, show that he loves you, comfort you, and bring peace to your heart. I came to the United States from York, England when I was 25 years old. I won't tell you the date or you'll be able to figure out how old I am. And after completing graduate work, returned to England to look for a university teaching job and be near my family. However, after initially rejecting a job offer in Utah because it wasn't part of my plan, I felt strongly prompted to take the job and did so. After being in the U.S. for some time, I remember feeling homesick one day and wondering where Heavenly Father was taking me. I went to the Jordan River Temple and was waiting outside the dressing room for a friend to join me. As I sat there, feelings of homesickness swept over me, and I remember thinking how much I missed my home and family. I turned to look at the photograph on the wall behind my chair. It was of the Jordan River Temple. Immediately a thought came clearly into my mind. You are home. A sweet, loving peace swept over me as I turned to look at the painting on the wall to my left. It showed Jesus appearing to a kneeling Mary outside the garden tomb. And as I gazed at it, another thought came clearly to my mind, and I am here. I suddenly felt totally at home, loved and comforted. Step three, don't be consumed with the trial. This can be very hard to do. Try to focus on the good things in your life, not on what you don't have. Choose to be happy in spite of the difficulty you are dealing with. Don't wait for circumstances to make you happy. Sometimes you may think, when I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get a certain job, then I'll be happy. When this trial is over, oh, then I'm going to be so happy. Look for small miracles as the Lord reaches out in kindness to touch your life. Isaiah confirms that the Lord's kindness shall not depart from us, nor will he remove his covenant of peace. Life can be sweet and peaceful in the midst of difficulty. Donna Turley, a church member who suffered chronic illness, wrote this shortly before her death, quote, When I am gone, most of all I hope you will know that life was not too hard, too pained, too discouraging, that it never once seemed overwhelming to me. Please don't spend much time upon my illnesses, my difficulties, the disappointments, and the pain. Don't ever let that overshadow and obscure the splendor and the glory of life as it was always felt and known by me. Please don't miss seeing and feeling the happiness and the beauty with which life as I have known it has been filled. Step four. Fully consecrate your life to Heavenly Father and draw ever closer to Him and His Son. Have an attitude that you will serve Him in spite of the pain you are going through and the lack of true understanding you have of where He is taking you. Continue to feast on the Word of God and have faith. Be willing to spend time with God. Desire it with all your heart. Make the time to pray fervently while being willing to submit to his will. Serve him by serving others. Spend time in meaningful meditation and attend the temple with a worshipful attitude. I bear you my witness that as you do this, the veil will become thin. 
and you will feel a wonderful closeness to your father. I have taken a poem from Martin Seligman's book, Authentic Happiness, and I've modified it, but I give him the credit for much of the poem. This best describes my own feelings as a result of spending sacred time with my father in heaven. But I will descend from this elevated state, this seeping sweet peace, this consuming love, and time will close about me and my soul stir to the rhythm of the daily round. Yet, having known, life will not press so close, and always I shall feel time ravel thin about me, for I have felt the still, pure, white presence of divinity. When you consecrate your life to the Lord's service and draw ever closer to him and his Father, you will move along the path, as Elder Bruce Hafen said in his devotional address last year, from being a servant of the Lord to become his friend, and ultimately, as you become like him, you will become his son or daughter as a joint heir with him. This past Christmas, I made star-shaped shortbread cookies for my neighbors. In order to roll out the dough, I had to hold it in my hands so that the butter softened and the dough became malleable. As we have faith in Christ and let him hold us in his hands as we submit to the Father's will, he will mold us, roll us out, and cook us through adversity in our lives till we reach the point where through faith in him he is able to make of us bright, glowing stars, shining individuals who are sensitive to others who are struggling, sensitive because of the pain we felt, which helps us know better how to succor others, mirroring in a very small way the way Christ succors us. Ultimately, through this process, we can become one with him and with our Father, so we become and then overcome the world through faith in our Savior. Elder Maxwell confirms this process. He said, quote, Attributively, we are to become even as Jesus, with his virtues being increasingly replicated in our lives. Even in the midst of our obvious imperfections, a sacred process is to be underway, if slowly, nevertheless resolutely. Whatever one's unfolding agenda, he can be overcoming if he is becoming more like Christ. End quote. The wonderful promise is, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. Heavenly Father is preparing us to be gods. We don't understand what this really means, but he does. He knows the necessary process to help us achieve this. Trust in our Father and his Son as you seek to become like them. Choose to live a happy life in spite of the trials of life. For with God's help you can overcome Satan and find peace and happiness in this life. Then one day, if we have been faithful, we will have the happiness that is far beyond any fairy tale ending, as we experience the reality of eternal life with our Father and his Son. I know this to be true, for his Spirit has borne witness of this to me. I am grateful for the gospel and the great plan of happiness. I am grateful for the abundant love I feel from my father and his son.
May each of us endure well and grow from the various situations we are called upon to face in this life. And may we each reach out in kindness to succor others in their trials and help them along the way. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Overcoming Mountainous Difficulties with thoughts from Michael A. Dunn and Carol Wilkinson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.